0: Thank you very much. Um, I also thought I had about 35 minutes to talk and I've now been told I have about an hour and a half. So <laughs> that's that's your bad luck and my good luck. No I I, I don't I, well we could easily fill the time but there'll be lots of time for questions if if people would like. Um, it's not a good slot to have because that was such a nice lunch. So not only do you guys have to stay awake, I've got to stay awake. So um, that's 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 hard enough. I'm going to cover three things. They they're quite broad themes i uh, going to speak it was going to be before about 35 minutes before we go to, go to questions. I might go a little bit longer. Um, if anybody's got a question in between, just put your hand up. Because I, I really get bored hearing my own voice. So by all means, just, just put your hand up. You can ask a question en route. Uh, thank you to Devet van der Spey, who's not here, but who is the guy who invited me. Know, he must have stayed in Joburg today. Um, you hiding anywhere, Devet? He's not. And and if you're wondering, you know, as as, as I was introduced, I'm I'm from Joburg originally, but I've been living in London for just over 14 years. My accent's a bit mixed up, Um, but I will speak in English because my Afrikaans is Um, It's lovely to be in Cape Town, and thank you very much for all the rain the past few days. It's made me feel very much at home, so it's it's, it's lovely. Thank you. My wife was so excited to come here because your winter is warmer than our summer, but it's So thank you very much. Your weather is fraught. I'm going home. So uh, great. So we're going to start off now. I'm sorry. I know there's some CFAs in the uh, in the audience, so I- apologies. If you're not interested in Institute and Faculty of Actuaries things, you can sit on your iPhones now for, for a few minutes. But I'm, I'm going to just do a little bit of Institute and Faculty of Actuaries stuff. I'll wake you up when we're doing investments, OK? Good. So. Um, I'm here wearing two hats. So my, my day job is I do work in wealth management for for HSBC, but I'm here primarily wearing my Institute and Faculty of Actuaries hat. And I just want to cover a few things about the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. I know most people here are ASA. You get your fellowship through ASA. I think a, I was chatting. I was chatting to a guy over lunch, and he said he's more of. A, he's still um, a fellow of the Faculty of Actuaries. Um, I think it's great that there's such a strong actuarial community in the UK, uh, in, the, in in South Africa. Um, so. But one of the things I'm here to do is to hopefully learn a bit more about how we can service you guys as our constituents, as our members a bit better. And I'll tell you a little bit about what we're doing uh, at the moment in the UK. So a little bit about the strategy that the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries are are running at the moment. For those of you who don't know, there's been a big change over the past five, six years. There's a new chief executive. There's a lot more focus on defining strategy and not just um, coasting. And there's five main things which the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries is doing. One is education, so the the high quality qualification which we've all got. One is regulation. So people like me, I'm I'm regulated both by the Financial Conduct Authority and by the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. So if I get things wrong, I get clapped by two people. Uh, We look to support our members. Uh, We've got all sorts of things like CPD. We have online resources and, and things like that. One of the big ones, which is, which is a difficult one to define, is the public affairs or, or the public interest side of things. And, and we, we spend a lot of time debating this. But we believe in we've, we are much more active now in standing up and speaking on issues of public interest. I'll talk about that a bit more in a moment. And then there's the idea of being a learned society and, and promoting research. Um, but when it comes to public affairs, I think one of the things many of us will, will, will well, i certainly have felt over the past few years is actuaries don't put their head above the parapet that much. You don't see the Institute and faculty of actuaries on pages of the FT or the you know, Daily Mail and Guardian or whatever it might be. We're looking to change that, um, not to get into headlines, but we're looking to be the people who governments, regulators, and other sorts of people will call for an opinion to influence the policy debate. and. Because we can't be all things to all people, we're trying to focus on four key areas at the moment. So the four themes are aging population, resource, and the environment, the future of investments, and regulatory policy. And um, a lot of thought has gone into thinking about these are the areas where we think we can make a difference and we've got something to say, Um, or where we're looking to do some research and find something to say. So for example, on the aging population, there's a lot of work going on on long-term care. Uh, we're working with the Department of Health in the UK, where some institute and faculty of actuaries research is being developed. And we're also working with Australia and America to do some of the things on long-term care, including mitigating longevity risk. In terms of resource and the environment, there's a lot of there's a lot happening here. Uh, again, we're working with the government, the Foreign and the Commonwealth Office. Uh, we're applying actuarial approaches to climate change risk assessments to to impact policy decisions. And we recently met with the Prudential Regulatory Authority and the Bank of England, which is, um, the the two are are very similar now in the UK, to look at how insurance companies consider environmental things in their solvency type of considerations and and, uh, investment decisions. Um, And on the investment side, we've been working again with the Treasury in the UK and the Department for Work and Pensions, in particular engaging on the pension freedoms, which I'm gonna talk about shortly. So I'm, I'm, I'm personally very excited. We are coming to the table uh, not only knocking on the door of policymakers and government, but they're actually knocking on our door and saying, you know, can we speak to you? I think our biggest achievement, and I'm, I'm very proud of this, is they come to us sometimes before they consult and they go out for their public consultations. They'll say, oh, what do you think about this? So we're actually getting to even influence things and, and, and help position things before they go out into the public domain for public consultation. So that's, that's very much the space we'd like to be in as a as a profession. So that was my... For all the CFAs, that was the main boring bit. Um, I'll do a little bit more about the uh, Institute and Faculty of Actuaries stuff, but I'll, I will wrap that up shortly. So I uh, I, I chair the Finance and Investment Board for the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. Has anybody heard of the boards? Um, has anyone ever heard of the boards? No? Oh, we've got, we got a couple of hands. They used to have a very unsexy name. They used to be called Practice Executives, or. or uh, they're not very exciting. But basically, the way, the way the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries works, it's all volunteers, um, apart from a small executive staff. But there are boards responsible for all of the actuaries who work in pensions. There's one for actuaries who work in investments, actuaries who work in life, health. So this is the one responsible for actuaries who work in investments. So you guys you guys might be interested. We've got a few things we're responsible for. So on the left-hand side there, you've got our formal um, terms of reference. And again, it's the same sort of things that I was talking about earlier, supporting actuaries, education, CPD, public affairs, things like that. Uh, But I've boiled it down a bit more simply in terms of my my period in office, which is a couple of years which started last year. If you look on the right-hand side, there's there's three things I'm trying to do. I want to support actuaries towards having senior management roles in the investment world, whether that's chief investment officer, senior fund managers, chief executives of fund managers, um, senior actuaries when it comes to life companies, investment books. We want to see actuaries holding those positions. At the moment, some of them are held by actuaries, some of them are held by fund managers, some of them are held by accountants. Why not us? We've got all the skills and uh, we've got the aspiration to be there. So I see it as one of my responsibilities to do what I can to support actuaries into those type of roles. The second thing is to make sure that we have an education strategy which is helping actuaries to achieve those roles. So some people and a lot of people in this room are at a, a, a more senior. Uh, senior position in their career, they're they're, they're probably already, you know, getting into executive type roles if you're lucky. But then there's lots of people starting off just post-qualification who might want to get into a senior role. What are we doing by way of the exams, um, by way of CPD to make sure we're we're supporting people on that route? And the third one is research. Um, There's not a fortune of cracking investment research coming out of the actuarial profession at the moment. We get a lot of good stuff out of the CFA. Society, we get a lot of good stuff out of banks, asset managers. Um, I'd love, I'd love us to have something published, which is, you know, quoted in the FT, which is being looked at and thinking, wow, these guys are trailblazing. And there's, there's an area where we can be different. We do think long term, you know, a bit like we were talking about power stations earlier. Actuaries can think about assets which can be invested for the time horizon of the liabilities of the clients that we work with. So we can, we can think differently. We should be uh, making a mark in the space. And, and one of the things I'd like to do is to get us, get us publishing in this area. And if anyone's got any ideas, come and shout, we've got money. I can sign off 5,000 pounds, and I can go to the research board and get more money if people want to. Please ask us for money to do research if you want to do this, if you're working at a university, or you know somebody who wants to do it. Um, I'm embarrassed to say for the past couple of years, we've underspent our research budget at the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. And when it's gone, it's gone. So seriously, it's there. The last thing, which I think might be relevant um, to you guys, is banking, getting actuaries thinking about what can we do to influence the banking world. I've got a fantastic guy named John Young, who who works for the Royal Bank of Scotland up in Edinburgh, who's taken over our banking member interest group. And we're getting a lot of actuaries, um, both in the UK and elsewhere in the world, Wanting to be involved in a member interest group, it's people who work in banking, want to influence the world of banking, whether it's from the solvency side or the conduct side. So again, if you're interested, give me a shout. I know you guys have got a qualification. There's an asset exam in banking, if I remember correctly. You're leading the way. I think you're the only country which has actually got an actuarial exam focused on banking. It's a natural place for us to be operating. I work in a bank and... You have a wide variety of people with a wide variety of qualifications, very few who can do what we do and who think the way that we think. So we've got a fortune to add. So the last thing is just some stats for people who like those things. Um, We've got 26,000 members of the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. Of those, 12,000 are qualified. Um, Interestingly, three-quarters of them are under the age of 40. 40% of them are women. And... um, the majority of the members are in the UK, but we've got 9% in Africa. And um, you guys are some of our key constituents. And it's much more than 9% when it comes to investments. South Africa stands out as having a lot of actuaries who are active in investments. That's one of the reasons why I've actually just opened up a position on my board for a South African actuary. And we've got somebody in mind, and hopefully we'll be able to announce an appointment soon. So uh, that, that's very exciting. And then that'll be somebody who will represent your interests on the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries board, telling us what we can do better to serve you uh, and then the last thing is, seventy-nine percent of our members work in life, insu- general insurance and pensions, and just four percent work in finance and investment. So you know we're, we're we're a small, select minority here, but we're we're small and mighty. I, I like to think you know we can, we can punch more than we can punch above our weight. So one last thing I just wanted to share with everybody is: there anyone here who is a chief investment officer or who who works in the chief investment office of an asset manager or a life company? No. Well, give 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 it a couple of years. Hopefully, we'll have a few more actuaries in that position. I think we did have one. There was a lady I was speaking to um, from one of the fund managers who said her boss was an actuary and he was the chief investment officer. So, maybe, maybe they're too busy to come to a conference. Um, but we we have been wanting to focus on this as an area, and we 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 ran a number of things in 2014. We had a roundtable with a number of chief investment officers from big life companies and asset managers, where we looked at what does it take to succeed as a CIO. We then ran a masterclass, again, in Staple Inn in London for people who want to become CIOs, where you could ask questions to people who are CIOs and say, well, how did you get to where you are? What's the, um, what, what's the route? And then we had something at our conference last year in, um, in Glasgow. Um, and if I don't know how many people read the actuary religiously, or do you just look at the last few pages and think, my god, that's a lot of money. I wish I had one of those jobs. Um, if you ever look on the inside of the magazine, there's actually some articles, and they, 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 they're quite good. If you look at the March. Uh, the March edition. There's a really good article. We interviewed three CIOs and they talked about what it takes to, to succeed as a CIO. It's really interesting. And it's part of our program, of trying to get people to aspire to and look at what, what, what they need to do. The interesting thing is, if you look there in the bottom left-hand corner, similarly to any C-suite, you know, any, whether you're the chief investment officer, the chief executive officer, CFO, those are the four key things that, that we, we realized CIOs are going to do. And what do you need to be a good CIO? It's the stuff in the bottom right-hand corner. But probably the big one is that top one, which says you're comfortable with investment risk. Um, one of the quotes I've got for you is from Ian McKinley, who's, my, who, who's on my board, and he's the, chief, he's, the, he's the CIO of the Aviva pension schemes, which is about 15 billion pounds of um, assets under management. And his statistic, which comes from a very reliable source, which is his left thumb, is that nine out of 10 actuaries are not cut out to be CIOs. Anybody got an idea why? because actuaries don't really like risk. (laughs) A lot of actuaries are in the business of avoiding risk, mitigating risk, managing risk, whereas a CIO wants to take risk. A CIO is somebody who's actually got risk in their DNA. So one out of 10 actuaries is probably gonna make a good chief investment officer. Nine out of 10 of them will make very good chief risk officers. And incidentally, I'll do a plug for the risk board. They've got a chief risk officer initiative where they're supporting actuaries into very senior management chief risk officer roles. So don't worry, if you're not part of the one in 10, there's a, there's, there's a good career for you. Um, and HSBC's uh, Asset Management Chief Risk Officer is an actuary, as it so happens. So there's, 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 a, there's, there's, a, good, there's a good, strong career for you there as well. So um, before I go on to the exciting investment stuff and we wake up the CFAs, any questions on Institute and Faculty of Actuaries stuff? No? Good. So you can all wake up for the fun bit now. Um, I'm going to cover three things when it comes to retail investments. So the retail distribution review, um, if you haven't heard about it, it's probably the biggest thing in in the past 20 years to hit the UK um, uh, retail wealth management market. So I'll talk to you about that. We'll talk about freedom and choice in pensions, which is also probably the biggest thing to change in the the, the UK pensions landscape, again, probably in about 20, 30 years, thanks to um, uh, a very aggressive, uh, uh, conservative government change, which which has been very well received. And then the last thing is auto-enrollment. And I believe all three of these are going to come to the South Africa at some point in the next few years, so um, think about this as a, a little bit of a, a taster of things to come. So the Retail Distribution Review. it's It had a pretty simple goal. It was to improve the retail financial advice market. And um, there was a strong argument to change the retail financial advice market because we've had scandal upon scandal upon scandal. Whether it was pensions mis-selling, we've had two or three pensions mis-selling scandals, we've had mis-selling of endowment products, we've had mis-scaling of structured products, mis-selling of money market funds. You name it, we have a scandal which has been on the front pages of the newspapers. And it got to the point where the regulators, the public, the consumers said enough, we've got to change things because it's getting a bit embarrassing and the journalists are having far too much fun we have to find you know, something to, to change the world. So three key things were introduced. Um, it was all announced in the late 2000s, uh, and it only took effect from January 2013. The big one was taking away commission. So I think the, 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 the South, South Africa still runs the same way we used to in the UK, which is you went to go see the guy from Liberty or the guy from Old Mutual, whatever it was. Could have been a lady as well, very modern. And um, they would sell you something, and they would take 3% 4% commission, whatever it was, but the customer didn't see it. As far as the customer was concerned, advice is free. That nice man from The Proof, it was so nice of him to come to my house, I gave him a cup of tea and he sold me this lacquer policy, eh? Oh, it's great. If you read right at the back of the policy, you see, yeah, and fantastic, I only paid him 30,000 Rand for it. And it's, that's, that's, that's the sort of thing which, which most customers didn't read to the back. And of course, you know the guy from Liberty was a very nice guy, but there may have been somebody from another company who sold the product which, perish the thought, gave him the highest commission, rather than the product which was right for the customer. And that, that, that was the basic driver. The driver was that there was a lot of analysis done which was, surprise, surprise, the products which were sold the most of were not necessarily the products which met customers' needs. So by removing the commission payments, and this was both to the actual advisors and the platform providers, it equalized the playing field. The second one is to become a financial advisor, there was no one qualification. Some people could have just had the equivalent of matric. Some people could have had a degree. And there was there was no standard to which everybody had to be. Um, so the idea was there would now be a standard minimum QCF level four. I think it's, it's about an undergraduate, halfway through an undergraduate degree qualification. And then the third thing was to really improve transparency. So instead of being on page 20 of your quote of your product, what you're going to pay for this, upfront much clearer what you're going to be paying Those were the three key changes and and just you know the pictures that I've got over there are Just giving you a bit of a snapshot of of how the world has changed You know the the old days in the UK and I think in in, in South Africa as well Whether it was the Prue or before Liberty before Liberty bought the Prue you had the guy from the Prue You know he came to your door and, and he and he and he you know had a cup of tea and He was representing both the manufacturer and the distributor. It was a very simple world and um, at the end of, you know, at the end of it, you have the customer sitting in their little cottage there with the green door. Very different today, um, even, even before the retail distribution review and, and even more so afterwards, there's this whole spaghetti of how the actual products get to the customers with people in between. Some of them obviously playing a very important role, some of them taking a bite along the value chain, some of which, of course, is going to be passed down through to the customer. And. Um, one of the key things that the retail distribution wanted to review wanted to do, the RDR, was to at least make it transparent. You can't undo the spaghetti. The world has moved to where you've got these various different moving parts. But make it clearer what you're getting when you're getting it. So what's what's actually happened? Um, so this is, this is not me making it up. This has come from, oh, have I lost a slide? Uh, two years on. I think I've lost a few bullet points. Doesn't matter. I just, um, it was it was reformatted, so I'm just trying to recognize it. So the regulator did their own post-implementation review, and one of the good things that came up very much front and center is the product bias appears to be gone. So they, they, they keep track. Um, everyone has to do returns of which products that they've sold, and it's pretty clear that the worst offenders are not being sold anymore in anywhere near the volume that they were being sold. So big tick in the box in terms of Hopefully, less misselling, less things being sold to customers because they had a big fat commission attached to them. The other real big thing has been consumers have benefited in no small way. We've gone from a world where most products had annual management charges of about one and a half percent, you know, somewhere between one, one and a half percent annual management charge, but a total expense including platform or the pension wrapper or the insurance wrapper, whatever it was, of two and a half, three, sometimes four, five percent that's all come all the way down. So annual management charges are now generally in the half a percent to three-quarters of a percent range, which is very, very very good, obviously, for consumers. And the actual wrapper charges have come down as well. Most most wrappers, so for a personal pension or a life insurance bond or whatever it is, again, it's come down to another sort of half a percent. So the actual all-in cost to consumers used to be north of 2%, at least, probably close to 3%. It's come down to about 1.5%. So that's phenomenal for consumers, absolutely phenomenal. Um, a lot of that's been driven by competition. A lot of that's been driven by transparency. So if you're a consumer, you're smiling. If you're a manufacturer, you've been squeezed. And, and you've got to think about how can you do things in a much more efficient way, how can you do things in a much more commoditized way, because the, the days of easy money are gone. Oh, and and just to say, the vast majority of advisors, if not all of them, are now actually qualified to the new standards. So you've got a a, a new degree of professionalism. In terms of what's actually happened, it's very interesting. Consumers, um, there was a hypothesis that consumers pay for advice. You have to sell consumers investment products or whatever it might be, and they will stay in whichever channel they're in. So if they're a self-service channel where they buy things online, they'll stay there. Or if they see a financial advisor, they'll stay there. The actual evidence doesn't confirm that. So customers tend to actually go between the channels, which is quite interesting. Uh, There's a lot of evidence which suggests consumers will use advisors for the complicated stuff. So you'll go and pay somebody to give you advice on setting up a pension, transferring from a DB to a DC pension, or consolidating your pensions. That's the stuff you can't do yourself or setting up a fancy endowment or insurance type product. But customers will then sometimes self-service after that. So the interesting thing was there's evidence that customers go between channels. They'll start off by seeing somebody and then they'll do some self-service. The the biggest drivers of um, whether people are going to take advice is trust. Again, trust in a financial advisor, confidence in the individual. Those are all all the positives. The one thing which is the jury's still out, or if if you were being unkind you'd say is a negative, it's, it's unclear in terms of what are the charges. So people have adopted lots of different business models. There's some people who've actually kept the exact same business model. Um, I won't mention names, but there are networks of independent financial advisors which still charge between 3 and 4% upfront, which is exactly what they used to charge in the past, and they take between 1% and 1.5% service charge. That's not including the annual management charges, that's just the financial advisor taking that Pretty old school um, they 're mainly in the high net worth space or, or, or the the mass mass high net worth type of space there 's other people who 've gone for a much smaller simple model where they charge a flat amount of money i 'd say on average, most people are charging between between one and three percent up front and between half and um, between a half and one and a half percent on an ongoing basis to actually service customers. So we, we, we have seen those prices come down. But they come in all sorts of shapes and forms. Some people have a flat charge. Some people have add-ons for, for every different service that you want. And I think it's probably fair criticism that it's not, it's not 100% clear to consumers. And I think what we will see over coming years is it'll, it'll probably standardize to some extent, whether it's going to be an upfront percentage or it's going to be a certain flat amounts. So that's one area. Where we've seen some change. So, what about the manufacturers, or what about the actual products themselves? So, I think probably the biggest way that the the manufacturers have adapted to very very compressed margins is they've moved away from products with bells and whistles. You do still have you know big star fund managers and products like that, but by and large, the majority of things are. Bog standard multi-asset funds. There's a hell of a lot of risk-controlled funds. Have you guys got these here, where it's sort of a risk-budgeted fund? Um, it's got a particular volatility target or whatever it might be, and then it's it's basically you know it's it's a bit like lifestyling, but you actually pick where you want to be on the risk spectrum. Much more commoditized, so less. I'll do. I'll build something bespoke for you because that's expensive. So the idea is you build investment products which are bog standard, easy to industrialize, easy to manufacture. Um, there's a lot of passive investment, obviously, because it's, it's considered to be cheaper. There is often choice where you can have active but using, for example, the, the, the insurer or the asset manager's own own brand, asset managers, or you can have whole of market, but obviously it's a bit more expensive then. The idea is that the financial advisor, so whether it's the guy from you know, Liberty, Old Mutual or an independent person, instead of them spending their time saying, you know what, I can pick the best fund manager for you, and then trying to say to the customer that they can charge for that. They said, you know what, my job is to understand you. What's your time horizon? How much have you got to invest? What's the shortfall between what you're targeting? Great, you now go into portfolio one or portfolio two, and I'll trust my guys in Cape Town or my guys in Johannesburg or my guys in London or Edinburgh or wherever it might be. They'll build the portfolio for you. I'll concentrate on servicing you. So there's there's been a very big focus on service from the people who speak to the retail customers and less on, on presenting themselves as fund managers or wealth managers. The last two points, I think structured products are still there. I don't know if structured products are very popular in South Africa, in the retail market. No, not, not 100%. Sure. They were very big in the UK. Surprise, surprise, they tended to have very high margins and very, very high initial upfront commissions. So one of the reasons we don't see them being sold quite as much is because of the transparency which has been introduced, but also the ultra low interest rates. It's very, very difficult to find juice to um, go and spend on options in your structured products when you know, the interest rates are so low that you're funding at. The last point is, having said that, customers still want capital protection. Even though we could probably do the maths to show them that a portfolio of half cash and half equities will give them the same outcome as a capital-protected portfolio, there's a behavioral element that customers often just want it. So they're still there. Often the insurers are are selling these capital-protected products because they can hedge it um, just using the life book instead of actually having to go and buy options, which makes it much more expensive. So they are still there. Uh, they're a lot more transparent. There's a, no one's really doing with profits anymore because with profits has fallen out of favour. But that's, th- th- those are the main changes to the, to the products themselves. So I'm going to go on to pensions in a second. But any questions on investments? No, nope. gentlemen in the middle. <laughs> So it's interesting. The hypothesis was that it would, but it actually hasn't. Um, they, 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 that was the hypothesis, that because people were going to have to pay for advice, there would be less advice being offered. The, the regulator's own research suggests that there are as many, if not more, financial advisors than there were prior to the RDR. Um, there are. Having said that, that probably masks something, which is most firms will only offer advice to people with a minimum level of investments, normally at least 50,000 pounds in savings or investments. Um, so there is arguably a, a disenfranchised group of people who've got less than that. Having said that, there's probably an argument that that sector was overserviced and didn't need wealth management products. They could probably just do with savings products or you know, self-selected, just a, a very simple sort of investment product. So at the moment, it doesn't, it doesn't look like it. I guess we'll, we'll have to see in years to come. Um, interestingly, savings—the main thing that's been hitting savings rates—is is base rates. So our base rates has been half a percent for the past, you know, four or five years. Um, the firm that I work for, because we're 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 so highly rated, our savings rates are, are teeny. I think one of the best rates we've got for instant access is about 1.7%. Um, that's instant access. Obviously, if you go into term, but even even term fixed deposits, you're not going to get much more than two and a half percent. So savings rates are very, very low, and they've they've been kept depressed, obviously, because of quantitative easing and things like that. Um, The the only only way you can get slightly better rates is actually if you go go up the risk curve to sort of you know, bank of some Middle Eastern country, or whatever it is, who's got a London branch. Uh, But interestingly, you've got got protection. So we've got something called the Financial Services Compensation uh, scheme. So up to £85,000 of your savings are actually protected by the government. Uh, but, yeah, no, rates, rate, rates are low because of where base rates are, unfortunately. And, and the pensioners are all moaning because um, their savings are not getting much. Great, we'll move to freedom and choice in pensions. This is, this is the exciting bit because I, I was talking to somebody over lunch about this and um, I think this is, this is where you guys might be going in a few years. This was, this was uh, an, an absolute blast from nowhere. Nobody expected this last year. Uh, what happened is, around about this time last year, so it was April 2014, the Chancellor stood up and said, this is wonderful, anybody who wants to doesn't have to buy an annuity anymore. You can choose whether you want to keep your pension invested, you can withdraw whenever you want, or you can take the whole lot as a lump sum. And this was absolutely radical, because prior to this, you, you had to annuitize by the age of 75, and if you were not going to annuitize at an earlier age, you could only take a drawdown where you started to take an income from your annuity if you met a certain minimum amount of money that you had in terms of the, the, the wealth that you had or the secure income that you had. So this, is, this, 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 this was and is completely radical. Um, it's, it's, it's had a very, very positive reception because pensions have got a bad name in the UK. Probably one of the primary reasons why they have a bad name is because there's been two or three, depending on how you count it, mis-selling scandals where people were sold from final salary, DB into DC pensions, or personal pensions, and then there's also been, um, the charges have been, as we said, ridiculously high. You've had pensions 3, 4, 5% a year charges in some cases. So this, this has been seen as something absolutely brilliant by consumers. Um, having said that, the government, not completely uh, foolhardy, and they introduced something called the Guidance Guarantee, recognizing that you didn't want consumers just raiding their pension and blowing it all, so the idea was that people could get help, whether it was online through a telephone call centre or face to face. If anyone's interested, there were also some changes in terms of what you can do with pensions upon death. And this has been um, this has been pretty radical. Now, it's very interesting. So just before I left, because it's only been in, it only came in uh, in, in the beginning of April two thousand and fifteen. So before I left, I, I sort of got an update on where we are, and the results are quite interesting. So for people with very small pots they are ringing up and they are taking their money. So what do people think the three biggest things are that people are spending their money on? Take a guess. Holiday, that's one. Paying off debt, brilliant. And the third one? It's not kids, but it begins with a K. Kitchen. I've always wanted a new kitchen. Those are the three things which people are spending their pension money on. Holidays, paying off debt, and getting a new kitchen. So it's interesting. It's very interesting. And and that's the small pots. So that's people with small pots. People with larger pots, by and large, the evidence doesn't suggest that they are going and doing holidays, um, kitchen, and uh, paying down debt. But interesting, the chances are that they probably, if they've got a large pot, don't have lots of debt which they need to pay off and they might be able to afford a holiday otherwise. So the suggestions are the people who've got larger pots are actually not ridiculously affected. Um, now, the other interesting thing is there's lots of people who are saying, but what about me? I already bought an annuity. That's not fair. Ach, shame. So the government have come up with a wonderful plan, which is to promote a, a, market in secondary, a secondary market in annuities. I say wonderful with my tongue-in-cheek because I've got some reservations in terms of, um, are we really going to have a well-functioning market or a secondary market in annuities? And if anyone is interested, Institute and Faculty of Actuaries are getting involved to, to try and help shape this. But The idea is that people who've been locked into an annuity and perhaps would have liked the freedoms that, they could have, that these other people have got, they'll be able to enjoy some of the benefits. So watch this space. Um, personally, I have some reservations. We also have a lot of pension scams in the UK where you have people Sitting, you know, in offices somewhere, trying to raid people's pensions. They say, "I'll help you unlock your pension. And I'll just take 60% of it as a small fee." It's 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 not funny when you have things, you know, in 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 the in the personal finance pages of some other poor widow who's been who's been nailed by this. But there's a concerted effort by the regulators and the police and the governments to really try and weed these guys out. Um, the other interesting thing is there's been a second line of defence obligation put upon the actual pension providers. So when somebody does ring up to take the money out from their pension, they actually have to ask them some very probing questions to try and make sure they're not being conned. Having said that, they can't not service the customer. And At the end of the day, they have to, once they've gone through certain safety questions, still service the customer. And there is a certain amount of caveat emptor. Um, Apart from DB to DC, DB to DC, you you are required to see a financial advisor. So that's where we are on that. if we go on, to, so then we're going to go on to auto enrollment So before we go on to auto enrollment any thoughts or questions on pensions, gentlemen over there? I think the, the the primary the primary reason is pensions. Pensions have got a very bad reputation in the UK because of the scandals, and I think the government's made it very clear they they want they want to bring in more confidence in pension savings. Um, they want to see people they want to see people saving for their retirement. Um, there's, there's same as many other countries, prior to the credit crunch, a hell of a lot of debt, not as much savings going on as you would like to happen, so this is part of a concerted effort to get people saving. There is an argument to say, get interest rates above half a percent, and that will encourage people to save even more. Um, the other thing is there, there is a cult of property ownership in the UK, and, and there has been probably since Margaret Thatcher's days, and a lot of people see their property as their pension. But you know, again, you don't need to be an actuary to know that a portfolio of one buy-to-let property is possibly a bit concentrated. Um, and and I'd, I'd personally rather have my money in a pension. But having said that, people understand bricks and mortar. So lots of people say, yeah, my my pensions in a flat which I own down the road, because they can understand it and they can touch it and they can feel it. It might not be the most to us, not a rational thing to do, but to somebody who doesn't understand stocks and bonds and pension wrappers and annuities, it makes a lot of sense. So. Gentleman at the back. How does that work? Good question. And, and and that's that's one of the many we're gonna to have to answer. It, it's just been announced. So they've announced that the government wants to support a secondary market in, in annuities. How it's gonna work, I'm not sure. Um, there is an established market in the US where there's a secondary market in endowment policies, where I think it keeps the individual, so it's still the life assured who is the life assured. Um, there's all sorts of conflicts of interest involved. Yes, no, it's. I, it's going to be very interesting. <laughs> so, for anyone who didn't hear the question, is is you know the gentleman was saying this this sounds like it's going in the exact opposite direction of, of many other countries in terms of compulsory annuitization because that then protects the individual from longevity risk, um, and and you know if somebody blows all their money, obviously they can then become a burden on the state. It, it, it's an interesting one and, and, and funnily enough, the UK, the UK is a big nanny state according to a lot of people and you know tries to tell people what's best for them This is this is the first in, in, in many moves towards trying to trust Consumers because the theory is you know let let try, treat people as if they're grown-ups and let them um, Let them try and let, the, let them try and and, and do what, what works for them it, It's an interesting debate because people who have got very small pots are always going to have to be supplemented by the government anyway and there's an argument which says paying down debt where they're paying 20 30 40% interest rates rather than saving into a pension where they're probably not going to get 20 30 40% annual return is probably not that irrational and and if anything might might be positive for them but it's it's not black and white i think the, the theory is to try and encourage a savings culture and get people to engage with pensions um we're going to talk about auto enrollment in a second and and that's the interesting place where you you you're seeing you're seeing how this can work, um, and, and and what could be done with pensions. But we'll get we'll get onto auto enrollment in a second. There's another question from the lady over there. That's a good question. So um, uh, the the lady was asking, you know, there's you you do hear people offering to help people get pensions out of the UK, and how do you know if it's a rogue operator? So th- th- there are rogue operators outside of the UK and inside the UK. Um, the, the the first thing is the, the the advice for everyone is if anybody rings you up. You want to try and find out what's the organization, what's their address, and then you go to the Financial Conduct Authority's website, so that's the fca.org.uk, and you check if they're on the register. And if they're on the register, there's also a naughty list, so people who are on the register and have been struck off the register. So that's the first thing. You check to see, are they kosher? Um, the second thing is you can go to the Pension Regulators website. So the Pension Regulators is a separate regulator to the Financial Conduct Authority, and they've got lots of advice, and you can contact them. Um, the other option is something called the Pension Advisory Service, or TPAS, which gives people advice on these sorts of things. <laughs> there, there, there are con artists out there. The, the, the best thing is, is, is normally to send people to, towards the, um, the Financial Conduct Authority's website. Generally the advice, this is interesting, it's on all the radios at the moment, There's, there's sort of um, there's ads saying if somebody rings you up and they're promising you things which sound too good to be true, they're probably not true and telling people exactly these steps, trying to teach consumers to just have a little bit of common sense, because there are people out there who are trying to, who are trying to come. Um, but it, it can be legitimate. The, the, the other thing is this is, in, from, from a purely practical perspective, if you are in a old-style pre-RDR pension where you're paying 2%, you 3%, know, 4% a year in charges, switching that into a new-style pension where you're paying just over 1%. You know, if you think about it, over 20, 30 years, saving two, three percent a year of charges is gonna is gonna is gonna really it's gonna really make a big difference. And the interesting challenge is trying to get consumers to understand that and to sort of because it's it's hard, let's be honest. You know, there's nerds like us who get excited like this, but most people don't. You know, it's it's something which sits in their drawer and, and they might look at every few years. So that's the interesting thing is trying to get people excited. Yes, it's a, it's a good question. I, I, I'll put my hand up and say I'm not an expert on the state pension. Um, the little bit that I, that I do know about it is there's, 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 there's a few different state pensions. So there's the state pension that you're entitled to just based on your years that you've been contributing to towards national insurance, and then there's additional state pension you can get which is based on your means. So if you go and blow all your money um, and you then obviously become reliant on the state, you'd get both. So there's yeah there's a moral hazard there to go and blow all your money and then become (laughs) become uh, reliant on the state. To be fair, it's not incredibly generous. You know, it is a it's a safety net to keep people out of poverty. The state pension's generally not going to be enough unless you're living in a small village in Wales or somewhere. But you know, even then, it's not not necessarily going to get you that much. Should we hit auto? Okay, we'll go to auto-enrollment. So any, any other questions, keep them for, well, just by all means you can ask us as we go along. This one's, this one's really interesting, and, and it's, got some, it's got some counterintuitive and some intuitive uh, type, of, type, of, uh, type of things. So there was, there was two Pensions Acts introduced in 2008 and one in 2011, which introduced auto-enrollment. And the idea was, again, um, this, this predated the pension freedoms, but it was about increasing private pension saving in the UK. And um, a, lot, a lot of the context was, there was this, there's not a big culture of saving for pensions, especially uh, amongst lower earners. So eligibility starts from, you know, £10,000 a year, which might sound like a lot in rands, but it's, 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 not, it's not very much in pounds. And um, the goal is by 2018, the minimum contribution is 8%. Um, of which three percent needs to come from the employer. So you know, even actuaries like us and me can do that maths. So that means people are going to have to put five percent in if they want to. Uh, if they want to 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 be getting to this. It started in 2012, so it started with the very big companies, um, and then from next month we, we we start to bring in some of the smaller companies. The phenomenal thing is, almost five million people have already been auto enrolled. And that's big when you think about the fact that it's only a population of 60 million people in the UK and those are obviously not all working-age people. So that is, that is very big and the government is targeting 9 million, so already, already halfway there. So this is, this, is, this is pretty impressive. The really impressive things, so I've, I've taken the worst number of all the research papers I've read, so I've said 12% opt out. There's, there's other papers which say 9%. That's pretty incredible because people are having to contribute to stay in. They're not going up to the full 5%, so in most cases they're starting to contribute between 1% and 2%. So the idea is to soften the blow, to get people used to contributing before it starts going up. But that's incredibly low, you know, whether you want to call it 9%, 10%, 11%, 12%. And the interesting thing is, I don't know if there's anyone here or if South Africa's been getting as excited about behavioral economics and behavioral finance, people tend to opt out less you know, there's there's the sort of uh, inertia of, of, of getting people into this. And that's, it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, there's a few things which you would expect. So obviously younger people tend to, to opt out less than the older people. And I think to some extent the older people might not see the value in it if they're, if they're going and they're building up a part of it later. And again, okay, there's things like you'd expect part-time people to perhaps opt out less, sorry, opt out slightly more than full-time people. They, 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 they may not have a, a stable working pattern. Um, it's... Um, I think, a great, a great success. And the interesting question is then, so what about the investment side of, of, uh, of auto-enrollment pension schemes? So there's been a lot, of, a lot of things happening. So one of the biggest things is, from last month, a cap on the charge, which is 75 basis points, which is tight, again. But that is, a, um, that, that, that is again, trying to bring in confidence that people's money is being managed and is not being used to feather the nests of some of the people who are providing the services, I, I can't begin to explain to you, you know, especially post the credit crunch, and you know, bankers getting multi, you know, multi-million pound bonuses. There is a great distrust of financial services in the UK. So things like this, putting caps on what gets charged and and, and trying to make things as transparent as possible, is aiming to bring in some trust. Um, so that 75 basis point covers both the asset management as well as the the wrapper fee for the pension scheme. It doesn't cover things like transaction costs and trading costs. Now, the interesting thing is that the government created a default. So if if a company is not going to set up their own pension scheme, they created a default pan-employer scheme called Nest. It's a fantastic name, I think, the uh, National Employment Savings Trust. And it's very, very popular. Enormous, you know, lots of big companies like McDonald's in the UK and all sorts of firms have actually chosen to use it because it's so professionally run. Um, It's designed for low to moderate earners and they've done some very very clever stuff. The first clever thing is they've managed to come in very cheap. So they they manage all of their investments and they outsource it, but they do it on an an institutional basis. So they they give big segregated mandates to fund managers. Um they're only charging 30 basis they're only taking 30 basis points a year, which is which is very very low. They do have another charge, so they have a contribution fee of 1.8%. But even if you average that out over say 10 years, it's still just under half a percent a year, which is, which is very, very low for a, uh, um, for a pension. So that is, um, yeah, that's, that, that's pretty impressive. What's very cool that they've done, and I, I, and I know the, the, the chief investment officer, and he was showing me some of the research behind this, is they do lifestyling very differently. And I don't know how many of you guys have seen a lifestyling strategy which has got this first stage. The first stage is don't lose my bloody money. And it's very interesting because we're all used to classical life which is take lots of risk when you're young, take lots of risk when you start off, and then less risk when you get to the end. But they did a lot of research with consumers, and you've got to remember these are people who've never invested in a pension before. They're, they're being opted into one, which they need to opt out of. So the primary driver was build trust and build confidence. So what they're aiming to do here is promote confidence. So they're actually aiming in the first few years just to have a little bit of outperformance against inflation, all about capital preservation. Then they turn on the engines for you know a few years, and then they look to to, to de-risk again. It's it's pretty radical. I don't know if there's anyone else who, who's done something like this, but you've got to remember it's for their audience. It's it's for the members who are going to be low earners, first-time members of a pension scheme. So pretty pretty interesting, and it's, it's going it's going well. They've got they've got quite good. Um, they've got quite, got very low attrition. The interesting question is though. What what, what about that final stage? So in a world where you don't have to buy an annuity, what does de-risking look like? Um, And the answer is, we don't know. Um, At the moment, the vast majority of uh, company pension schemes, uh, DC schemes are still doing lifestyling the old fashioned way. You know, you you, you do high equity in the beginning, you go down to 75% gilts or or fixed income to match an annuity and 25% cash at the end because people tend to take a lump sum. Um, and I think what we're going to see is there's going to be multiple default strategies depending on what people are going to do. If you're going to annuitize, it's going to be one thing. If you're likely to draw down an income, it's another thing. If you're likely to take it all as cash, it's going to be another thing. But that makes it much harder if you are a uh, if you are the employer or you're the trustee of a of, of a DC pension scheme, and there's a fortune of guidance put out there by the pension regulator, and the default option has to be designed with your, your customers in mind, your members. You have to monitor it, you have to communicate to them. Interestingly, it's just like running a, a retail, a retail uh, insurance company, which, which is a big wake-up call for trustees of DC pensions. Now, trustees of DB pensions have had to wake up over the past 25 years because of funding gaps, and they've had to do liability-driven investments, and they've had to really, really professionalize what they do. But DC pension schemes, people have thought, oh, just put them in an investment and forget about them. But the world has changed and the regulator has said, no, you, you have a responsibility, these are your customers, so to speak, and you have to think about how you're going to invest their money because they're probably gonna stick into the default. So it's, it's very interesting and, and the bar is, is, is constantly being raised. Um, and there's, there's, there's an important role for actuaries. And one of the things that we talk about in, in, in my board is there's gonna be fewer jobs for actuaries in DB over the next 20 years, but more and more jobs for actuaries in DC. So all of our friends who, who work for the, uh, the benefits consultants um, we're, we're sort of nudging them and saying, "Wouldn't you like to come become a, you know, a chief investment officer or come to one of our investment conferences?" They get 2,000 people at their pensions conference. You know, if we can scrape 250 at our investment one, it's a good year. So, yeah, a small amount of self-interest, I must admit, in trying to get them to our conference. But I'm thinking about their career. You know, I'm thinking about the next 20 years. I want them to have jobs. The um, the last thing that I would just say is, is is we are seeing a lot of innovation. So we are seeing products. Which have a lot more of the advice embedded in them. So products which have got rebalancing built into them. Um, we're seeing lots of tools. So I know I know a lot, a lot of the big famous institutional tools came out of South Africa. Things like Moses and Profit. So the interesting thing is there's 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 retail versions being developed. So retail stochastic modelling ALM tools which are being built into point of sale systems for financial advisors to use. Or customers can even just log on to websites and use them themselves. And the really interesting thing is, is the idea that they're trying to make them fun. So there's this idea of gamification. So we've all got iPads, and we're used to playing. Is Candy Crush big in South Africa? You know, all right, well, there's, there's, I'm sure you've got your, your, things like Angry Birds, but my wife's perpetually playing Candy Crush. But it's can you make financial services fun? Can you make customers want to do this sort of stuff? No one's cracked it yet, but it's, um, we, we all live in hope. Just the last thing I was going to say is I think this, this, this is a critical place for us to get involved as actuaries. Because there's other people who might be able to do investments, there's other people who might be able to, to do distribution models, but who understands the whole piece end to end, from the liability side to the asset side through to the actual, uh, you know, the, 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 the whole integrity side? Because remember, we always know more than our customers, and I think it's us. So I'm, I'm personally very excited about it. That was retail, and that, that, that was it. I've, I've got basically only three more slides. So, um, any questions on the pensions? auto enrollment side of stuff? Gentlemen over there. So a question, um, I'll just repeat for everybody. So the first question was, is even 8% going to really touch sides for a lot of people in terms of providing them with a credible pension? Uh, and then the second question was, isn't that that early stage where you're doing consolidation, isn't that going to have a negative impact on your ability to uh, uh, to actually grow your money to, to be something useful for a pension? Both both really good questions. Um, I've got a, an okay answer for, for for the second one. For the first one, I'm going to try. Um, um, uh, just off the hoof here. So I, I do think for your lower earners, I don't think the the idea is that their personal pension will be the be all and the end all and will enable them to completely replace their working income. I think the idea is it'll be a complement to the state pension. So I think that sort of goes back to the gentleman at the back's um, observation. So I think the idea is between 8% into your personal pension and, and, and estate pension, the idea is people would be able to maintain some standard of living. There's some other tax incentivized saving schemes as well that, that people are always encouraged to use. Um, people can now put £15,000 a year into what's called an individual savings account, which is great. You pay no capital gains tax, no income tax, nothing. It's, it's, it's a really great wrapper. Um, to the second point, I think, I do stand to be corrected, but when I spoke to the Chief Investment Officer of NEST, he said they ran the numbers and they did all the simulations to actually look at over your 40-year, 45-year time horizon from a member joining towards the end. The impact of those five years of of not really turning the risk up is marginal. So if you look at it in terms of the likelihood of a whole um, cohort of members, the impact of them staying in and more people staying in and saving for retirement was bigger than... The investment return that they would sacrifice, which was that, that cause they, they 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 did think about exactly that point, and that was the sort of decision that they made. Another question for the gentleman in the back: What would auto preservation be? Oh, good question. Uh, I'm not 100% sure. I think if you if you choose to become paid up or whatever it is and no longer pay in, I think you would keep your pot. I don't think you'd be able to take your pot out until retirement age, which is a minimum of 55. I don't think I, I don't think you would forfeit your contributions or anything, but I I think it might depend on the rules of the scheme. The benefit of Nest is Nest is portable, whereas if you work for the ABC company's pension scheme and then you move to another pension scheme, you might lose the employers contribution in some cases and only be able to keep your own contributions whereas the benefit of nest is it's completely portable you can you can move between employers it's, it's one of the perennial questions of wouldn't it make more sense to have multi employer schemes like you 've got this in, in Australia you 've got the superannuation schemes and in the Netherlands I think you've got the big multi employer pension schemes as well but the uk's actually got much more of a culture of individual pension schemes um, which which one of the one of the things which everyone would love to do is just see could we come up with a cheaper, quicker, easier way to do it. I think we're actually moving in that direction. Obviously, the providers don't particularly want that because you know, it'll further reduce their margins and their ability to win customers. So, Any, any other questions before we move on? Right. So for, uh, for those of you who work on the more institutional side, I'm just going to quickly cover three things. Um, I haven't got that many slides on this. So we'll cover ETFs very briefly and the march of ETFs and how they continue to rise. We'll cover fiduciary investment management, which I think is certainly growing in South Africa as well, and then liability-driven investment. So ETFs, um, I think, have, I continue, to, continue to just have this phenomenal, phenomenal rise. Uh, the idea which I wanted to get across here is, if you look in the top right-hand corner, passive Passive continues to sort of peak up. I know people talk about you know passive taking over the world, but actually you know this is this is research which is a couple of years out of date. But certainly in the institutional world, it is still predominantly active. Um, there is a if you really squint there, you can see there's a bit of an upward curve in those blue bars, and, and passive is definitely is definitely starting to go north. Um, I haven't seen the 2014 numbers yet, but so it it might well be a bit more marked. Um, so in the institutional world, there there's still quite a substantial use of active. Having said that, there's a lot more discernment going on, which is people will pay for active management where they believe there's a decent chance they're going to get some alpha. So if they don't think uh, there is much alpha to be had, for example, in, in, in developed market equities, they might just go with a, a core of, of, of passive management and then have a bit of, um, have a bit of active around the, around the edges. ETFs continue to really rise. Um, Again, the skeptic in we in me might 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 say that it's not necessarily driven by customer demand. It's driven by the people who issue ETFs. So you know you can get dozens of different types of ETFs which do the exact same type of thing. Um, interestingly, a lot of growth in fixed income ETFs, which is a little bit of a, a little bit of a contradiction in terms. And we had the the, the gentleman earlier talking about fixed income, not necessarily. You know, wanting to base a fixed income portfolio on a on an index but that's obviously what your ETFs are, are, are doing but a, a hell of a lot of growth and probably the, the one which is, which which is surprising is the growth of ETPs which is which is an exchange traded product which is actually less of an equity than a bond in most cases and it can have a return linked to commodities um, it's actually gotten to the stage where you cannot just get a an ETF based on Oil price—you can basically get, you know, three years on the oil curve. You can get to that point of um, of precision, which normally retail investors would never be able to do. Only only institutional investors could do swaps with that level of um, real focus. The last thing I would say here—that this is the interesting one—is—is is, is smart beta taking off in, in South Africa, or enhanced beta, or fundamental indexing. It's not really new, to be honest. It's been around for about 20, 30 years. It's just it's had another sexy rebranding in terms of it's now being called Smart Beta. Personally, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit... I can't understand why they're calling it Beta, because it is Alpha, at, at the end of the day. You're, 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 using a, you're using a quant screen to decide which stocks are going to go into your portfolio, so it's, it's a bit like active management. But the theory is it's much more easy to industrialize. You just run a quant screen. Um, getting a lot more popular... And again, this is this is a bit like lies, damn lies, and, and statistics. You can do back testing to show that your quant filter has got alpha. Just pick the right period. They're interesting, and they're, they're, they're certainly growing. They're certainly growing in, in in interest. So, be remiss if I didn't mention that because it's it's certainly it's certainly a big theme in this institutional space. In terms of fiduciary investment management, this one this one is has has been a a, a continued trend. And you know, if you look at some stats, um, all of this has been liberally stolen from a. Um, if you look on the, well, oh, I don't know if it, some of my, some of my sources may have been lost when this went from my template to this template. But if anybody wants, I can I can give you the details. This is from a KPMG report um, from 2014. It it's it really is growing. You know, if you look at that top right hand number, you know, over 36% or you know over, over 30% increase in the number of these mandates every year for the past seven years. It's it's a it's a, it's a market which is definitely growing. I think one of the reasons is dead simple, which is running investments for final salary pension schemes is complicated. The UK still has a tradition of lay trustees, so you can have somebody from the shop floor who is sitting on the trustee board, who you know, up until last week was running a machine shop, who is now making decisions of what to do with billion pounds of investments, probably makes sense to outsource this to a professional in a lot of cases. And I think that, that, that's what is increasingly happening at the top end. Um, it, it's certainly something which you're seeing in the bigger, bigger final salary schemes. Um, oh, sorry. The big, the the bigger final salary schemes are tending to actually buy in their own executives. So instead of paying two hundred thousand pounds or three hundred thousand pounds to Towers Watson or Mercer's to 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 consult to you, they'll just hire a CIO and you know pay him or her and, and give them a staff of sort of you know a couple of actuarial students and a CFA for the same money. So that, that is something which you, which which you are which you are certainly seeing. Um, in terms of who's active in this space, you've got the traditional consultants, really dominated by your 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 Towers, Watsons, your Mercer's, your Hymens of the world. Um, you've got some boutiques, some 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 little consultancies. The asset managers are trying to break in, but interestingly, this is this is certainly an actuarial stronghold. You know, the asset managers trying to come in and present themselves as asset liability managers is a bit of a hard sell. Whereas if you come in there as a pensions consultant and you've traditionally done the asset liability side and you've done the asset side, you, you, you're generally walking in. The other major theme is there's very little competition in, in this space. Most of the mandates are given out without a competitive tender. So pricing is still quite high. Uh, and again, the cynic in you says if you're a, uh, if you're a consultant and you can get 300,000 pounds to do a, a, a mandate, or you can get half a percent of 12 billion pounds, which one are you going to want to get? So the, the consultants are very keen to move down the value chain to get a bit closer to the money. Um, and the consultant, and sorry, and the asset managers are obviously very keen to move down the move down the value chain themselves to try and keep more of it themselves. Last sort of theme I would flag is LDI. Um, know it, love it. If you, if, if that's your sort of thing, it is. It is big. Uh, certainly, again, the past twenty years, this has only got bigger and bigger and bigger. This is where your final salary pension schemes are looking to hedge their liability risk in a world of near zero yields in a lot of cases, and, and sort of government bonds sub two percent uh this this is this is important interestingly you know there's there's a lot of I told you so there's people who 10 years ago saying oh I don't want to hedge because you know rates rate, rates are going to go up I'll hedge when rates go up and um interestingly Goldman Sachs then knocks on the door the next week saying really you know the interest rate's just been held again at half a percent are you sure you don't want to hedge so you you, you do have a lot of this happening you know, there's a really big number there you know 500 I think that's 500 trillion 500 billion, sorry, 500 billion hedged, um, 800 mandates. This Interestingly, this one is, is dominated by the asset managers. So you've got Legal & General, Insight, and BlackRock. Those are the three big players who, who really dominate the LDI world. Uh, very, very big, this, this is all of the using inflation swaps and interest rate swaps to hedge your liabilities. There are some pooled options. There's some pooled things out there for your smaller pension schemes. Um, not surprisingly, smaller pension schemes are not really big into LDI because from a governance perspective, it's blooming complicated. You're dealing with investment banks, you're signing ISDAs, you're having to post collateral, it's really complicated. In some cases, they'll just say, I'll take my chances on an old-fashioned fixed income portfolio because, because you, you need to know what you're doing. Um, otherwise, you know, it's, uh, there's obviously a risk that you might not know what you're doing. Last thing I'd cover is just that top left-hand corner about longevity. There's a lot of excitement about longevity swaps. There's some of it happening. There's not necessarily as much as people think happening. There's probably increasing amount of buy-in and buy-out, where people sell uh, a part of their book to a life insurance company to, 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 to cover the, the longevity that way. Again, lo- longevity swaps are also hellishly complicated. You know, at least interest rates and inflation swaps have been standardized over the past 10 years. Longevity is bespoke every single swap um, and very complicated. Uh, but it, it is being done. That's the institutional side. So the last thing, if you'll forgive me again, the CFAs can switch off for a minute, but um, please do get involved. So there's, there's lots of things you can do. Just because you're in South Africa doesn't mean you're not you know, far away from email or a telephone call. We have a lot of our meetings by conference call. Um, or if you're a, a seat on one of our boards, we might even be able to get you a flight to, to London. No promises, but you know, it, it could be done. So by all means, get involved. We've got working parties, member interest groups, um, become a marker. Come on you know you want to, you can write articles. and as I said, you, there is going to be a South African on our board very soon. Um, that, that's about it. If anyone desperately wants that, that you know that's some highlights from our conference, which is happening next week and um, lots of exciting things. and then these, these are some of our working parties. So that that's about it. Uh, any questions, comments, thoughts? Absolutely, absolutely. Charity begins at home. Fair enough. No, fair enough. Thanks. Are there any other questions for Brandon? All right, I'll be around the next coffee break if you like. So, thank you very much. Cheerio.